The two epistles of Peter are a fitting farewell from a powerful prophet, containing counsel specifically tailored for his audience in Asia, that the persecutions that they bore were a fitting tribute to their Lord Jesus, and that their hopes, and the hopes of all of us, would be properly focused on his future return. I'm Mark Holt, and this is Gospel Doctrine. Welcome to Gospel Doctrine. This week's lesson is the first and second epistles of Peter. As always, should you care to contact the show, email me at gt at gospeltoctrine.com. Uh, I, I regret I don't have time for questions this week, um, and I'm getting the podcast out a little bit late. I apologize for that. Uh, the reason is, well, one of the reasons I have good news, I am engaged to be married. And so that... Uh, that has put a little bit of a strain on my time in the last couple of weeks. I, I didn't uh, announce this last week in the podcast because I wanted to say it in my ward first. And so those members of my ward uh, who are listening, you hopefully already heard this in church. But uh, And I'm also getting married before the end of the year, which is um, also putting a little time constraint. However, our special episode before the end of the year will be entirely composed of your questions. So if you want to send questions about any topic under the sun, I'll respond with my opinions from the scriptures, and uh, that'll be our special episode in December. Also, if you're wondering how to leave a five-star review for the podcast, you can do that right if you have an iPhone, right in your podcast app, and that will leave a five-star review on iTunes, and those help us to find new listeners and are much appreciated. Okay, the epistles of Peter are fascinating, and uh, we won't spend too much time talking about, the as, as the, is the case in many epistles, their authorship and their timelines are somewhat controversial. And we won't spend too much time on this as we have in the past. Uh, it's been my experience as I look more deeply into these kind of questions that the scholars who dispute the traditional authorship of scriptural books quite often, not always, maybe 75% of the time, are basing their arguments on a line of thinking that is founded in the assumption that these are not prophets who are receiving revelation from God. So, for example, that Peter and Paul would be uh, teaching things that seem to build on one another, and so then, therefore, one of them had to come before the other. Uh, A lot of these things go away when you start your reasoning from the assumption that they are prophets of God and are and have been called by a real risen Jesus, and that the events that they describe around the resurrection of Jesus are not only subjectively true, but are historically true as well. And so for that reason, we're just going to ignore some of those questions. If you're interested in it, there's plenty of information uh, on the internet. But my own conclusion about First and Second Peter is that they were probably written by Peter, and they would have been written towards the end of his life, the second epistle most certainly, and the first epistle, we don't know the relative time frame, but probably not too far before. So uh, it's possible that Peter wrote the first letter is basically a treatise on how to withstand persecution and how to adopt a proper attitude that would help you to have faith in Jesus, even though you're being persecuted for his name. And we'll talk about uh, who these people were that he's writing to. And then my own 
sense is that somewhere in between these two epistles, he got word that a lot of false teachers and teachings were coming into the fold uh, among these same saints that he'd written his first epistle to. And so the second epistle of Peter is not just a farewell, but also a counteracting force to these ideas that were creeping in among the Christians that he was obviously in some correspondence with. So we'll start with the first epistle of Peter. And uh, first of all, Peter starts right away in verse 1, casting these saints as foreigners or as strangers. Strangers was a term used throughout the Old Testament to mean those who had come to live among the Jews in Canaan. And there were a lot of laws about how they must be treated in the law of Moses. There were a lot of rules about, about this. So when he calls them strangers, this is, this, this is a loaded word, and it has an Old Testament significance. And this is uh, on purpose, this is deliberate on the part of Peter. Uh, and so he's calling them two things. In verse 1, Peter says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus. He names five Roman provinces, all within Asia Minor, which is present-day Turkey. And so these are the saints that are actually many of the same areas in which Paul preached. Uh, north of Jerusalem, north of just north of Antioch, the center. This is the center of uh, first-century Christianity. So Peter has been a missionary as well. We don't have as detailed and as prolific an account of his journeys as we do of Paul's, but he's he's been a missionary as well, and he probably has personal acquaintance with many of these saints that he's writing to. But he starts out calling them strangers in verse 1, and then in verse 2 he says, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit. But elect is a word meaning chosen. So they are two things. They are wanderers, and they are chosen. Now, he's, he's doing this on purpose. What Peter is doing is, uh, so let's, let's consider, first of all, who his audience is. These Greek Christians are probably not of Jewish descent. And so they've suffered, as we've read in the epistles of Paul, they've suffered persecutions not only from the Romans who say, you shouldn't believe that Christ is king, you should believe that Caesar is king, but also from fellow Christians who are of Jewish descent, or as Paul called them, of the circumcision, who would say, you're not of the family of Abraham. So when Peter says you are strangers or wanderers and you are chosen, what he's saying is you're just like Abraham because Abraham was chosen from all of the people of the earth, from all of the descendants of Noah, Abraham was the one chosen to have the covenant, to bear the covenant of God. And he was a wanderer. He left his home in Ur, and he went to Haran, and then eventually went to Canaan, but first went to Egypt. And so Abraham was a wanderer for much of his life, even though he'd received the promise. And Throughout this epistle, what, what Peter is doing is he's trying to get these saints to see themselves in the greater context of all of the Old Testament prophecies and to see that these promises to all the ancient Jews are being fulfilled in them today and that they, they apply, because these people believe in Jesus Christ, they apply equally or even more so. And we'll talk about how he does that. And it's not just, by the way, it's not just uh, Abraham that was a wanderer, but a stranger can also mean an exile, right? So it's the entire nation of Israel that he's really likening to the people of the modern day. The modern day Christians are all exiles and strangers. Now, after his introduction, Peter begins a poem, and this poem is uh, it's a song, it's a hymn of praise. It's called a doxology, 
and by scholars, by Greek New Testament scholars. And this just means a hymn of praise. And it's about uh, 10 verses long, and it introduces the themes that will be used for the rest of the, the first epistle. But basically, these epistles, these themes are that you're a new, you are the new family of God that Christ, prof, or that all the Old Testament prophets prophesied about, that Christ promised while he was alive. He said, we're going to create, uh, out of Abraham's seed, we're creating a new family. Remember the first chapter of John. We've talked a number of times about the, the tale of two seeds. Those who were literal descendants of Abraham and those to whom God gave the power the, through Jesus to be reborn through the Spirit. Peter uses the words born again in this epistle, and what, what he's saying is the same thing that John would later say in John chapter 1, which is that God gave those who believe power to be born again through Christ in the Spirit, and that's a more powerful way of being a child of Abraham. And this, this very message is consistent from Peter to Paul to John. They all repeat the same message, that it's not the literal lineage of Abraham that matters, but it's the spiritual lineage of choosing Jesus Christ, of choosing the Redeemer, and that that actually has efficacy with God. So that's the first theme is the you are the new family of God. And and then the second message is your suffering has meaning. Your suffering is a similar, is a type, uh, or it's a witness, you might say, of that you believe in Christ and that you're following him. Uh, Paul had mentioned this many times. He said, look, do you all think that you want to believe in an apostle who, is, who has widespread uh, approval by the crowd and also has worldly wealth? And so somebody who's popular, who's well-spoken, and who's rich. And I'm none of those things. All I am is humble. But if you look at me, you can see that I'm following the example of Jesus, not just in word, but in very deed, in the fact that I don't have any of those things, that just like Jesus, I have no comeliness or no form or comeliness that man would desire me. So Peter is saying, uh, your suffering is a witness of Jesus. So these persecutions that you're undergoing, these are actually uh, making you like your Savior. And then the final theme, so those are two themes. One, your new family, that you have these persecutions that should draw you closer to Jesus. And finally, that your hope should be focused on the future arrival of our Lord and Savior again upon the earth. So uh, let's, let's take these one by one. First of all, right in verse 3, Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope, or a living hope, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible. So, begotten us again means we've been born again. So this, is, again, is that idea that the, the direct lineage of Abraham is not what matters. He's trying to tell them that God has always promised that by Abraham's seed, through Abraham's seed shall all the kindreds of the world be blessed. But, he's, but Christ has begotten us again. We are the seed of both Christ and Abraham in that spiritual sense. And in verse 6, when he says, uh, you, the power of God, first in verse 5 talks about the power of God, and in verse 6 he says, wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations. Now, when we read the word temptations, we think, we think oh, these saints were uh, being tempted of the devil to sin, and that's obviously definitely true, but as we talked about last week, 
This word is a derivative of the word perazzo, which is a trial. It's the same word that describes Jesus being tempted of the devil, being tried, being put to the test, being proven in the wilderness. So even though he was being tempted to do evil, the, the word actually carries the meaning of being proven. And so when you are, if need be, you are in heaviness through manifold trials, through manifold uh, tests of a proving nature. And that's reinforced in the next verse. The trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. So uh, Peter is saying the trial of your faith is more precious than gold. So after his opening hymn, uh, Peter time and again makes references to the Old Testament. Now it's clear but because he doesn't cite chapter and verse, it's clear that his audience is very familiar with the Old Testament. So what had happened is that these missionaries, Paul and Peter and the other apostles, when they arrived in a community, the way that they taught people about Christ was by teaching them the Old Testament. They knew the Old Testament so well that Peter didn't have to mention, I'm quoting here. He didn't have to say where he was quoting from, but he didn't even have to say always. Sometimes they do say, as it is written. But sometimes they skip that entirely. Uh, So here's one quote, for example, uh, verse 15 and 16. As he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation, because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. Now that is a quote from Leviticus chapter 11, verse 44, where God says, Ye shall be holy, for I am holy. Neither shall ye defile yourselves with any manner of creeping thing, whatever he's talking about, the law of Moses. So God said, be ye holy for I am holy. Peter is casting these saints as the, the same, as the same kind of people that the Jews were while they were wandering in the wilderness because the book of Leviticus was delivered to these wandering Jews in the, between Egypt and Canaan. And they were uh, people chosen of God, set apart, and they were being led entirely by God. And he's, by quoting these scriptures from uh, the Old Testament, Peter is saying to these saints, you are just like these Jews. God is creating you anew. If you if you have an idea of what scripture I'm going to use at some point, <laughs> you're absolutely right. Uh, it's coming up. Jeremiah chapter 31. But uh, So here it comes. Anyway, um, ne- the next thing that, the next uh, Old Testament image that Peter calls out is the lamb, the Passover lamb. So in verse 19, uh, you know, Peter says in verse 18, you're not redeemed with corruptible things, in verse 19, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. So that's, that's a quote from Exodus chapter 12, when uh, the children of Israel are about to leave the land of Egypt, and God tells them, you've got to choose a lamb, a Passover lamb, and it should be a lamb without blemish. And the blood of this lamb will save you. This is Peter drawing that explicit parallel. In verse 21, uh, who by him, he's talking about the, uh, the saints, you are being blessed by God, who, you, by him do believe in God, that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory, that your faith and hope might be in God. So this is a direct reference to, well, not an indirect reference, to Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34. So he's saying, in that verse, remember, it says, in, in that day, they won't have to be taught of God. They will all know me, saith the Lord. 
And here he's talking about how you all know God. Your faith and hope are in God. And God has given Jesus Christ glory. And that's why you believe in him. Uh, so this, and, and as I've mentioned before, this, cha- this passage in Jeremiah chapter 31 goes along. Uh, it's equally paralleled by a passage in, in Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 25 through 27. Where, uh, so, so here we are in 1 Peter chapter 1. Now we'll go to verse 22. This is, I'm going to read from 1 Peter. Seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit. Um, so these two verses, verse 21 that I just read, and verse 20, or that I read a minute ago, and verse 22 that I just read. So there, these two verses are calling forth these two chapters in, in Jeremiah and in Ezekiel that talk about how God will one day change his covenant so that he will actually redeem his people by forgiving their sins and purifying them and changing their hearts. So uh, basically, uh, I'll read Ezekiel 36. This is verse 26. A new heart will I give you, a new spirit will I put within you. I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you shall keep my judgments and do them. That's Ezekiel. Now I'm going to read again 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 26. Seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit. Now, this, this is not so obvious of a quotation or of a reference that it just leaps out at you. The only way you would recognize it is if you, are, if you have uh, a very, very deep knowledge of the Old Testament. And so Peter was expecting that the people he's writing to would be, would be constantly studying the Scriptures. And not only that, but he knew that as they did, this, those scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, would point them to Christ. Now, that's a powerful message for us today. We think, oh, the Old Testament was a different law. It's the law that uh, Christ basically fulfilled and, and put away. But Peter is testifying by constantly referring to these things and by casting his audience in the role of the Jews of the Old Testament, uh, basically the second iteration of that same covenant or that same process, but a new covenant. He's saying that these scriptures point us to the Messiah, to Christ, the Son of God. And uh, so that's a powerful witness for us today, that the Old Testament is an important thing to study and know. Again, verse 24 and 25, uh, Peter quotes directly from Isaiah. This is Isaiah chapter 40, when he says, All flesh is as grass. The glory of man is the flower of of grass. The grass withereth. The flower falleth away, but the word of the Lord endureth forever. So if you want to look that, it's almost, it's not quite word for word, but it's very close uh, from Isaiah chapter 40, verses 6 through 8. So basically, the word of the Lord endures longer than any of the worldly things that you think are important. And And he's drawing this from Isaiah, an important prophet to the ancient nation of Judah. And he's saying, you you should listen to this ancient Judean prophet the same way that you should listen to me. Uh, and now, now we get, if you go on into chapter 2, uh, we get into the Psalms. So he's quoted from Moses, then he's quoted from Jeremiah and Ezekiel, then Isaiah, and now the Psalms. In verse 4 he says, uh, When we come unto Christ, we, we come as unto a living stone, disallowed of men, but chosen of God and precious. 
So uh, if we skip to verse 7, he quotes this again. The stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner. So the way this teaching is often paraphrased is the, the stone that the builders refused has become the head cornerstone. This is a direct quotation of the 118th Psalm. Now, Jesus quoted this in Matthew 21. I want to talk a little bit about Jesus' teachings at the time because uh, I think a lot of you have joined me since then. But in, in Matthew 21, Jesus tell, ter, tells the parable of a, a man who owns a vineyard, and then he, le- he leaves it for husbandmen, and they don't send him the proceeds of the vineyard, and so he sends messengers one after the other, and they, they beat them, and they cast them out, and they even kill some. And he says, well, if I send my son to them, then they have to treat him well. And then they kill the son. Now, the word for son in Hebrew is ben. Then, uh, then Jesus talks about, uh, in verse 42, this is still Matthew 21, he, he tells this entire parable where he talks about the son, and then he says at the very end of it, uh, in verse 42, Jesus says, Did you never read in the scriptures, the stone which the builders rejected, the same has become the head of the corner? This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Now, the word in Hebrew for son is ben, and the word for stone is eben. So Jesus is saying, I am the sun and I am the stone which the builders refused, which has become the head of the corner. Well, Peter is referring not only to Jesus' teaching, but, to the, but by reference to the 118th Psalm. And he ties it so brilliantly into all of us as well. So first he says, we come unto Jesus as we would come unto a living stone. And then in verse 5, so we're, now we're in 1 Peter chapter 2. In verse 5 he says, Ye also as lively stones, meaning living stones, ye also as living stones are built up a spiritual house. Now the word house is also, it's not the same word as uh, tabernacle, but it is means a, a home, a dwelling place that can be, be a dwelling place of God. So he's talking specifically about a temple here. You are living stones being built up into a temple of God. Now again, a holy priesthood. When he says a holy priesthood, he's saying you are the you are just like when uh, God said to the children of Israel, "I need from you a royal priesthood and a holy nation." In fact, in verse nine of First Peter chapter two, Peter goes on to say, "Ye are a chosen generation." a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. Now often, uh, I'm sure as Latter-day Saints, you've heard this, peculiar people, and what does that mean? Some of you know that it, some of you think that it just means we should be different. Some of you know that it means purchased. But what it actually means, the deeper meaning is, if you read this, now this is a, uh, this is the, this is a quotation of the 19th chapter of Exodus. When God is saying to the Israelites, I need you to be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, you're going to be a shining light to the Gentiles. And in the verse before that, in verse 5, he says, ye shall be a peculiar treasure unto me. Now, that's those two words are one word in Hebrew. Peculiar treasure is a segula. And the peculiar treasure, a segula is so precious that even a king might only have one of them. Uh, it's... It's exactly equivalent when Jesus talks about the man who sells all that he has because he found a pearl of great price. So he sells all that he has so that he could buy it. 
that pearl is then becomes his segula. It's something that's worth buying an entire field because you found that there is a treasure hidden there. This is the treasure that gives meaning to your life. And God was saying to the Israelites in Exodus 19, he was saying, you are my peculiar treasure, my segula. And Peter here in 1 Peter chapter 2, he's saying, you are the peculiar treasure, the segula of God. His whole purpose is to acquire you and make you his. So as one by one, Jesus or Peter is taking these Old Testament uh, ways in which God tried to make the Israelites recognize that they'd been chosen, that they were special, and he's applying it to the people who have accepted Christ, even though they're not literally descended from Abraham. He's telling them, you are the new family of God. In all of the ways that we've discussed throughout the Old and New Testaments, Peter's bringing them all to bear and bearing powerful testimony that God has chosen you. you by, by the mere fact that you've heard his word, he's chosen you. So then he goes on, uh, starting in verse 11 of chapter 2, 1 Peter chapter 2. Uh, Peter goes on to talk about why the sufferings that they're undergoing are actually blessings. Now, he starts by talking about how the, the Christians should, should subject themselves. They shouldn't rebel against Rome. They should subject themselves to the governments where they are. And he knows, he says, I, kn- I know it's unjust the persecutions that you're undergoing. But what kind of blessings do you get from suffering just punishment? If you if something goes wrong and you're punished, or if you make a mistake and you're punished, then you don't you don't win any points with God because of that. It's only when you bear sufferings that are unjust and you bear them well, the way that Jesus did, that you gain blessings. Uh, because Christ also, in verse 21, for even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. In other words, he trusted in God. Now, starting in verse 21 all the way to the end of the chapter, this is one big, long reference to Isaiah chapter 53. Uh, and you can see it a little more explicitly in verse 24. Who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree. In other words, uh, he for for our transgression was he uh, was he beaten was he bruised. That we being dead to sins should live righteously should live unto righteousness by whose stripes ye were healed. For ye were as sheep going astray but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. So a beautiful way of taking and adapting the 53rd chapter of Isaiah to these saints living in uh, Asia Minor, in, in, living in the Roman Empire and saying, we're all of us uh, called upon to live like Jesus who was willing to suffer unrighteously and trust in God that some, somehow it had a meaning. So Peter's trying to give meaning to their suffering He's saying, as we follow in Christ's footsteps, our suffering is given meaning and thereby it is rendered worthwhile. An interesting side note, uh, Peter talks about how the, the slaves should respect their masters, the, the Christians should respect Romans, not because these things are just, but because they're unjust, right? Because Christ would call upon us to do it. Then he talks about how women should respect their husbands, but then he d- says, does something very interesting, uh, so he, he says, he uses Sarah and Abraham as an example. 
even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters ye are. So he uses Abraham and Sarah as an example of why women should be respectful to their husbands. But then he says, likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel. Now, in Genesis chapter, and the, and the knowledge that Peter knows that these uh, saints have would have let him make this reference without explicitly saying it. But in Genesis chapter 21, Sarah comes to Abraham, and she says, the Ishmael is actually, he is persecuting our son of the covenant, Isaac, and I need you to put Hagar and Ishmael away from him, Or and, and this is according to Midrash teachings, but uh, it wasn't just mocking as it says in the scriptures, but uh, Ishmael was actually persecuting Isaac to the point where he was threatening his life. So Abraham doesn't want to get rid of one of his uh, concubines and his son. He doesn't want to put them away. And he goes to the Lord and the Lord says, listen to your wife, hearken unto her voice. So uh, that was a very interesting statement at the time. And and this is one of the things that sets apart Hebrew scriptures uh, from other writings at the time and from other cultures at the time was that women were quite often seen as equals. Uh, And there are a lot of examples I could give, but this is another example. This is Peter referencing Genesis chapter 21, where Abraham is told to to hearken unto his wife. Uh, And they're seen as equals, and he needs to respect her and treat her as such. Uh, Very interesting that, uh, you know, a lot of people think that this is actually uh, a prophet saying that women need to be subservient unto men. I, I find the opposite to be true. Incidentally, verses 10 through 13, or I'm sorry, 10, 11, and 12, uh, this is actually a poem. That he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil, and his lips that they speak no guile. Let him eschew evil and do good. Let him seek peace and ensue it. For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and his ears are open unto their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. That is a, that is a gospel poem. Just thought I'd point that out. Now this wonderful chapter, uh, or this wonderful passage, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, 19, and 20. Uh, this, it, this is the passage that gave inspiration to the 138th section of Doctrine and Covenants, one of the most glorious doctrines ever revealed. So, and it, and it taught us not just that Christ went unto the Spirit, so it says, I'm going to read these verses, then I'll talk about the meaning. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit, by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison, which sometime were disobedient when once the long suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was preparing, wherein few, that is eight, souls were saved by water. So, the, the meaning of this was not known, but when Joseph F. Smith revealed the 138th section of the Doctrine and Covenants, uh, and incidentally there was a talk about his, uh, his revelation recently in conference, when he revealed that, he didn't just reveal the doctrine of preaching to the, the spirits in the spirit world, but he also revealed that it wasn't just Joseph Smith who could be an exceptional prophet. And this is important. So Joseph Smith's message of the restoration was 
that the voice of God is continuously calling out to his people. And if there's somebody ready to hear, then he will speak. But Joseph Smith was so exceptional that sometimes we think, well, you know, we don't need to, to trouble ourselves about the, the deep things that Joseph Smith revealed all of those and whatever he didn't reveal, then uh, we, we don't get to hear that. I know that nobody would actually say that that's a doctrine of the church, but I think sometimes that is our assumption. And Joseph F. Smith proved that's not true. But he was reading these verses, and then he received this amazing revelation that showed us something about the nature of God that is so valuable to all of us that Joseph Smith had hinted at, but never explicitly said, and, and certainly never taught in this detail. And what is that lesson? That lesson is that those people who didn't hear the gospel during their life will have it preached to them after their life. That right there would be enough if I had never heard of the church, if I had never heard of the restored church of Jesus Christ, if missionaries came and they could get that idea across to me before I closed the door or whatever, before I said I'd had enough or I wasn't interested, if they could somehow communicate to me We believe that God went to the spirits who already had departed this life and preached to them their Savior, Jesus Christ. And that work is ongoing today. Everyone who ever lived will have an opportunity to hear about Jesus Christ. That, to me, would have been a game changer. I know it would have been. Because just thinking about it, Uh, gives me such respect for the justice and mercy of God that he is perfect, right? How can you believe that God is perfect if you believe that he would condemn people to an eternity of suffering just because they never had the opportunity to accept him? It, It basically means, and this is a reason a lot of atheists don't believe in God, by the way, Uh, They cannot accept a God who would treat his children that way, and with good reason, because it wouldn't be a just God, and it wouldn't be a merciful God. So uh, just pointing out these verses are here. Uh, We'll study that more when we read D&C 138, but uh, these verses are here. They, They inspired one of the most powerful revelations ever received, and certainly ever received in, in modern times. So now the rest of 1 Peter is basically Peter bearing testimony that uh, we should rejoice when we're persecuted for the name of Jesus. Um, I want to point out one particular verse. Now, we've already talked about how Peter is talking about this this amazing doctrine that, that Jesus would have gone to the spirits in prison to teach them the gospel. And I think that gives rise to... Um, the reading of, that most Latter-day Saints make of a verse in the next chapter, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 6. I'm going to read this verse. For this cause was the gospel preached also to them that are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. Now, uh, Peter all obviously has in his mind this process by which uh, Christ can redeem those who are dead by preaching to them. But I don't, my personal opinion is that that wasn't his first meaning, because if he's talking about this, for this cause was the gospel preached also to them that are dead, not only would Peter have to know it, but his audience would have to know it. Now, uh, it does seem that they would have had maybe some exposure to this idea, 
But another possibility, I'm not saying that this is what's going on. I actually think both, Peter intended both meanings. But another possibility of this, and I think this is borne out by uh, something we'll discuss in the second epistle, is that what Peter means by them that are dead, the gospel was preached to them while they were alive, and now they're dead. So what he's doing is he's countering the idea that if we don't live to see the second coming of Jesus Christ, then our faith was in vain. And he's saying the, go- the gospel was preached to those who, who then died that they could be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit, so that they could have access to those things while they were alive, so that they could benefit by making covenants and by being faithful to God and receiving those blessings. So he's trying to say to the people who don't want to wait for the second coming, he's saying, it doesn't really matter if it comes during your lifetime. Uh, the gospel is also preached to people that you know who have since passed on, and that wasn't useless. And so don't worry about when the second coming is. And uh, Peter develops this theme further in his second epistle. Now, obviously, he also has in his mind, I don't want to, I want to just want to repeat this, he also has in his mind the doctrine of preaching to the dead. I'm not 100% sure which, uh, which group he's referring to or whether he intends both meanings. I actually read this in a number of translations, and I still don't know. I think it's worth thinking about. Uh, a lot of times we, put a, we place a, an interpretation on a verse because it supports our doctrine, but I, I try to resist that, uh, that urge because I want to have the same understanding that the original writer intended of all of the scriptures. So the, the, the chapter 4 and 5 are basically, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read one verse that, that, is kind, that kind of sums it up. Uh, and this is 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 14. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye. For the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part, he is evil spoken of, but on your part, he is glorified. So um, uh, and if you want to go back and look at a scripture where Jesus said a similar thing. It's Matthew chapter 5, verses 11 and 12. Basically said, if you're persecuted for my name's sake, blessed are ye. And in chapter 5, Peter makes the point that it's not just the Romans that we're fighting against, but there is actually an evil force. He says the devil is real, right? The devil is after you. He's trying to get you. You have to, in verse 8, so 1 Peter chapter 5, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil as a roaring lion walketh about, seeking whom he may devour, whom resist steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. Uh, this, this casting of the devil as a roaring lion should give us a little clue, uh, not only into the visions of Daniel, but into what we'll study in the book of Revelation, which is that the devil is often seen as a beast, uh, either a lion or a dragon, and this is very common language and very easily understood by those of, of this time period, especially those who have grown up or have spent a lot of time studying the Old Testament. Now in Second Peter, Peter is giving his, he knows he's going to die soon. In verse 14 he says, uh, sorry, Second Peter chapter 1, verse 14, He says, knowing that shortly I must put off this my tabernacle, even as our Lord Jesus Christ hath showed me. Uh, Jesus once said to Peter, even though you are going where where thou wilt, uh, men in later times will take you where thou wilt not. 
And John makes a little editorial comment that says, and this said Jesus, signifying by what death Peter should glorify God. So the, the legend is that Peter was later in Rome crucified upside down, uh, because, and he, he refused to be crucified normally because he didn't consider himself worthy to have the same death that Jesus had. Now, whether this is true or not, we don't know, but that's the legend. So because Peter knows he's going to die, he wants to help, he wants to put these saints that he's once written to, he wants to write to them again and put them on a good footing when he's not around. And the most important thing he can say is, look, let's share in the divine nature of God. God invited us to do that. He talks about these seven virtues uh, or these, these seven Christ-like attributes, one of which is virtue. Virtue, knowledge, temperance, patience, godliness, brotherly kindness, and charity. Charity is the crowning virtue or love, the pure love of Christ, as it's often called in the Book of Mormon. Uh, the crowning virtue of anyone seeking to follow Jesus Christ. So then uh, Peter wants to address some objections that have been brought up to his doctrine. First of all, when he says uh, in, in verse 16, we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he's countering the accusation that uh, he has cleverly, he and the other apostles have cleverly cooked up this story by which they could subject others to their will. So he's saying, look, we didn't make this up. I know that you've been told that we made this up, but here are our witnesses. Uh, in verse 16, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He received from God the Father honor and glory. When there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved son. So that's a direct quote from, I believe it's Matthew chapter 3, when Jesus is baptized and the voice of God is heard out of heaven, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And Peter says, look, we heard the voice of God. We knew it was the voice of God. Uh, apparently there was, he said, it came from the excellent glory. So apparently there was something about of it that was totally unmistakable. And then he also says, the, this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. So now he's speaking about the Mount of Transfiguration uh, from Mark chapter 9. He's saying, we both saw, we, we heard the voice, but we saw Jesus transfigured before God. We saw Moses, we saw Elijah. I mean, these things are unmistakable. So these aren't cleverly devised fables. We are eyewitnesses. Either you can't believe anything we say if you don't believe that. You don't believe our eyewitness account of the risen Lord and of the glory that we beheld before he was dead, before he was risen. But then Peter goes on to say, look, you don't, have to take my word for it completely, because in verse 19, 2 Peter chapter 1, we have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto, you do, whereunto ye do well that ye take heed, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. And when he says we have a more sure word of prophecy, he's talking about Two things. Number one, the scriptures, and number two, the Holy Ghost. Now, this is the same Peter that was there on the day of Pentecosts when the when the power of the Holy Ghost showed itself in the hearts of everyone, and they all began speaking in tongues. So, uh, when he says no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation, uh, he's not saying that we don't get to interpret the scriptures privately. What he means is 
No prophet ever wrote scripture out of their own personal desires. They didn't, they didn't write it for their own private good. They wrote it because they were called upon God to do it. No prophecy of the scripture was that, by interpretation, he means the prophet's interpretation. It was, prophets speak, they're called to speak the words of God. They are the mouthpieces of God. The prophecy came not in old time, now we're in verse 21, uh, came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. But there were false prophets also among the people. Now we're in chapter 2. Even as there shall be false teachers among you. So he's, he's addressed one accusation, then he'll go on to address another one, which is that we don't have to worry about a final judgment. We also find this same accusation in the Book of Mormon. I'm no devil because there is none, right? There is also no God either. There, eat, drink, and marry because uh, for tomorrow we die. And even if God exists, he'll beat us with a few stripes, and then we'll all be saved at the last day. So this is accusation number two, that it just doesn't matter what we do. There's no judgment that's coming. And Peter counters this argument in verse four. He says, God spared not the angels that sinned. Now he's talking about uh, these beings that are called the quote-unquote sons of God in Genesis chapter six, or the giants among men. And... uh, you could go back and listen to the podcast on that episode if you want to know more about that. But the point is, he's referring to a time in Old Testament days, in scriptural days, when there was actually a judgment for sin. Uh, he cast them down to hell for their sin, for their rebellion against God. He spared, in verse 5, he spared not the old world, but saved Noah, a, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly. Uh, and so here's another example of the time when the world was judged, turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes. So he's, God has saved people, he's rescued people at the, who were righteous during a time of great wickedness, at the same time causing his judgments to come upon those who would not hearken unto his voice. So several times in the past judgment has come, Peter says, why shouldn't it come unto us? And then Peter goes on to talk about what's going to happen to people who follow this belief. They're going to, these, in verse 12, these as natural brute beasts made to be taken and destroyed, speak evil of the things they understand not and shall utterly perish in their own corruption. So that's the second, that's the second accusation, the second heresy, is that there will be no judgment. Now the third heresy is that Jesus is never coming again. Basically, Jesus has delayed his coming, and we don't have much to look forward to. Uh, Look how long it's been. People have been talking about the second coming of Jesus, and therefore, he's not really coming, or it's going to be too long. Uh, How long is it going to be? And Peter's response is to say, look at the creation of the world. Look at the world around you. I mean, the world wasn't always here. And so there, I mean, this is actually, this argument still stands up today. It's it's quite convincing. What he said was, basically, at one point, the earth began to be. And so the, the purposes of God do come about. It's just that we, we don't reckon time in the same way that God does. Our, our concept of time is far too short-sighted to understand God's way. And he, there's a, uh, there's a particular ratio that is, that uh, Latter-day Saints are quite fond of using from the book of Abraham, which is that a day 
to God is like a thousand years to man. So Peter says this, you know, a, a day to God is like a thousand years or a thousand years as a day. So he uses it in both directions. And what that means is that uh, God just does not see time the way we see time. He's not trying to create an exact ratio. And I think it's good to remember that, that one, uh, one day to God is not exactly a thousand years to us. It's just a metaphor for saying that God do, does not reckon time the way we do. In fact, he lives outside of time. This, this idea runs throughout the New Testament as it does in modern Revelation. So we're in 2 Peter chapter 3, and the point is, at some point, God created the world. At some point, all of his purposes will be fulfilled. And uh, the answer to the question is here in verse 9, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So Peter's answer is, you are complaining that Jesus hasn't come again, but actually that's a really good thing for you because God is being patient with us and extending the days of our probation that we can have more time to repent. It's a, it's a, show, it's a sign, it's a mark of his great love that he has not yet returned to earth and he will put it off as long as he can. But in verse 10, uh, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. So not only will he delay it, but then it will be unexpected when it does come. In the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, the elements shall melt with fervent heat, the earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Now, uh, this word elements is an interesting word. It, it, uh, the, the Greek word is stoicheia, which actually, so he's, he is quoting here from Isaiah uh, chapter 34, and the, the word there is stars. So this word is translated here as elements, can also be heavenly bodies. Basically, this is a metaphor for the, the entire heaven and earth being opened up, for secrets being revealed, for things being the reality as we know it to be put aside. In my own personal opinion, this is the closest that Peter could come to describing the removing of the veil from men's minds. And therefore, this is not necessarily a nuclear war, as I've heard some interpretations, that the whole earth is going to be burned up. There's a necessity of a nuclear war. Uh, what it means is that the reality that we know will not be the reality that governs when, when Jesus returns, whatever form that takes. It's going to be a dramatic difference. So two lessons to take from that. One is that we should be grateful that Jesus hasn't come yet because the day of our probation is still here. We still have an opportunity to repent. And that day will come. And when it does come, uh, we're, we're going to have quite a change in our circumstances. And those who have been watching will be, will be grateful. So Peter's con conclusion is, in verse 14, Wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things, be diligent, that ye may be found of him in peace without spot and blameless, and account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul also, according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you. As also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest with a W. 
as they do also the other scriptures unto their own destruction. I wanted to mention this because um, for a couple of reasons. In your scriptures, when you see a word in italics, what it means is that that word was not originally present in the Greek manuscripts. It's been inserted for clarity, but it's an assumption by the translator. So let's read this verse 16. As in all his epistles. So one way of reading this passage is that uh, some of Paul's epistles are hard to un- be understood. And it seems a little bit, uh, maybe cru- cruel isn't the right word, but it seems a little bit presumptuous of Peter to say that Paul, uh, he's very wise, he has great wisdom about the nature of Christ and that uh, the long suffering of the Lord is salvation, but some of the things are hard to be understood. However, if you take out the word his, as also in all epistles, then that also makes sense. But what Peter might be saying is that everywhere in the scriptures, there are some things that if you take them out of context, you can put yourself into a position where you can justify whatever behavior you like. And so therefore, um, which they are that... So the danger of this, which they that are unlearned and unlearned and unstable rest as they do also the other scriptures unto their own destruction. So if you're willing, uh, this this same idea is expressed in the Book of Mormon, by the way. If you're willing to take the scriptures and rest with a W, the word means W-R-E-S-T. It means to move something out of its proper course. So you can rest the course of a river, or you can rest the the control of a of a plot of land. You It's related to the word wrestle, right? You take it by force out of where it should be. And uh, those who are willing to rest the scriptures, they do it unto their own destruction. They think that they're justifying their actions, but what they're really doing is paving the way to their own destruction. So that's Peter's counsel, is that don't uh, beware, in verse 17, beware lest ye also, being led away with the error of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So to finish, I want to to conclude, I want to go back and, and hit just a couple of verses. Uh, first one is in 1 Peter verse 3, 15. Now these are famous verses that I thought would be worth more special mention. So 3.15 reads this way. Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. So this is often used as a missionary verse, and and rightfully so, uh, but it also has a a meaning beyond which what what we normally find. So be ready always to give an answer means, uh, most people interpret it to mean that I'm always willing to talk about the Lord Jesus when somebody says, how come you have so much hope? And then we give an answer with meekness and fear. I'm ready to testify of Jesus when the opportunity comes up. And that is one of the meanings of this verse. But the word answer here is uh, the word apologia in Greek. And if you know what a Christian apologetic is, it's somebody who gives uh, a, a logical defense, basically explains why it's worthwhile to believe in Christ, why it makes sense to believe in Christ. So that is more what Peter's talking about. He's saying, uh, be ready to give a defense. Be ready to explain why you believe in Jesus. You should, have, you should think these things out and be, be ready to give that answer. And this doesn't mean that if somebody doesn't believe in Jesus after talking to you, that it's your fault. Uh, 
but it does mean that you are to love God with your heart, might, your mind, and your strength, right? So how do you love God with your mind? You do that by studying the scriptures and thinking about the gospel until it makes sense to you that you believe. And if you have a problem, if you have a doubt, you know, how can I believe that God would do this? Or how can I believe that God functioned in this way in the past, et cetera, et cetera, that you keep searching until you find an answer. I, it's been my experience that when I study a particular question in the scriptures, it, I don't go too long without having a need for that very answer that I found for someone else. Someone will ask me a question, and it might be three days. If I'm, if I'm in, a, in a time of life when I'm regularly studying the scriptures, which hasn't always been the case, but uh, it, won't, it won't be more than a few days later that I will say, oh, you know what, I just studied that. And the answer to your question is this. And they'll say, oh, wow, that perfectly answers my question. That's happened to me so many times in my life. And what Peter is saying is uh, we should be putting ourselves in a position for being able to give a defense of why we believe the gospel. And that doesn't mean that we need to be contentious about it. But it does mean that, uh, well, let me, let me make reference to uh, something that Elder Neil A. Maxwell said. He said that articulate advocacy is needed. So, in other words, uh, and this is in his book, Notwithstanding My Weakness, uh, and he mentioned uh, a quote there. I don't have the exact quote, but uh, there's a quote there by C.S. Lewis that basically says, it, it doesn't mean that your argument is going to convince people, but what will happen is if there's no argument at all, if nobody is willing to defend a belief in Jesus Christ, then people will assume it can't be defended, and they'll give up on it more easily than they should. And so you and I should be ready to give an answer for that reason. We should be willing to say, I believe in Christ, and I've examined all of the implications of that belief. And if you're, and if you're interested, I can share those implications with you. It doesn't mean I want to enter into a Bible-bashing contest with you or anything like that. What it means is, I'm willing to share with you my own process of discovering why I believe in Christ, if you're interested. And that is what it means to give an apologia, to give a defense of the belief of the hope that is in our hearts. The other verse I wanted to cover is in 1 Peter chapter 4. And we'll finish with this. Uh, and, and I have another Apostle Neil to uh, recommend this verse, and this, this time uh, Elder Neil L. Anderson. The verse reads like this, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you. So Elder Anderson in his talk, uh, October Conference 2012, it's called Trial of Your Faith. And what he says is uh, that, well, first of all, he says the Apostle Peter identified something he called a trial of your faith. He had experienced it. This I'm quoting from his, his talk. Remember Jesus' words, Simon, Satan hath desired, Simon is another name for Peter. Simon, Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for thee, that thy faith fail not. Peter later encouraged others. Think it not strange, he said, concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened unto you. These fiery trials are designed to make you stronger, but they have the potential to diminish or even destroy your trust in the Son of God and to weaken your resolve to keep your promises to him. 
These trials are often camouflaged, making them difficult to identify. They take root in our weaknesses, our vulnerabilities, our sensitivities, or in those things that matter most to us. A real but manageable test for one can be a fiery trial for another. When faced with the trial of faith, whatever you do, don't step away from the church. Distancing yourself from the kingdom of God during a trial of faith is like leaving the safety of a secure storm cellar just as the tornado comes into view. And this reminded me of an experience I had at the beginning of my mission. I was a young missionary, uh, and I, uh, I was... I think I had a pretty good, I was getting a pretty good understanding of the discussions and what we should teach, but I didn't yet have the boldness and the faith that I needed. And I remember uh, one family was having a tough time with money. They were having a tough time. The father was having a hard time finding enough time to go to church. And I said to my district leader, I said, maybe we shouldn't, He, he challenged him to change his life. Uh, on, on a split that we had one day, and I said, maybe we should go a little easy on him because he's having such a tough time. Maybe now isn't the time for him to begin paying his tithing or to spend three hours going to church. Maybe we should let him off the hook. And uh, Elder Davenport, if he ever, ever hears this, I don't think he'll mind me sharing this. He, he looked at me in the eye and he said, Elder Holt, this man is having severe money problems and problems with how he manages his time. Don't you think it's about time he made the gospel a priority? And those words really sunk deep for me. I, w- I thought to myself, yes, what the heck am I doing here on a mission if I don't believe that, if I don't have the faith to challenge someone to obey the commandments of God? It's not me that has to keep God's promises, but either I believe that God will do it or I don't. And if I do believe it, then... Not only can I challenge other people to do it, but I can believe it in my own life. You know, I, and I think mo- the reverse might be what you would expect, but for me, the opposite is true. I actually f- have an easier time believing that God can bless other people than that he can bless me. And so when I bear testimony that God really does keep his promises, it often helps me to then apply that teaching in my own life. So that's my final message from First and Second Peter, is that these fiery trials aren't strange. It's not a strange thing that these fiery trials would come upon us, but God really does bless us, and we, we're better for the trial. He walks through them with us, and it is time that when those things come into our lives, we make the gospel a priority, if we will do that. God will keep every one of the promises that he's ever made to us. I have great reason to believe that, and I leave that with you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. This has been Gospel Doctrine, a nonprofit podcast hosted and produced by Mark Holt with bumper music by Kendra Lowe. Gospel Doctrine is not affiliated with nor endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints.